You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Welcome to episode 292 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I am a former academic. I live in Woodstock, Georgia. Joining me are two current academics, Nathan Gilmore, who is a professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia, currently going completely insane uh, in Statham, Georgia, uh, in the midst of the quarantine. How you doing, Nathan? Exhausted. Uh, yeah, being a full-time English professor and a high school algebra teacher uh, is wearing me out. <laughs> well, hopefully hopefully our episode today will give you a little bit of respite. Uh, David Grubbs is not with us this week because he, if you listen to the last week's episode, you know that he hated the topic of the episode. So figuring that one Grubbs is as good as another, we have his wife, Katie Grubbs, who you've heard. Uh, have you ever been on this show? I think you were on one of the... Uh, one of the Halloween crossover episodes. I think the Twilight Zone one was on this show. I think so, yeah. I think that may have been the only other time I've ever been on CHP. But you've certainly heard her on the Christian Feminist Podcast and on their kind of sub-series, Complementarianish. Katie, thanks for coming on. We're so glad to have you. I'm really looking forward to it, and this is a topic that I was excited about. <laughs> so um, I volunteered to take my husband's place, and I'm, I think this is going to be great. Plus, I, really, we shouldn't be doing this episode without a woman um, on it, just because it's, uh, you know, if you know, if you listened last week, or if you, you know, look at the title of the episode, we're talking about the Sofia Coppola movie, Marie Antoinette, which is a, a movie that has a lot to say about womanhood that Nathan and I are probably not as qualified to judge. So we are glad to maybe have you. Maybe not. May, I mean, maybe not. But we'll see. Well, before we get to the uh, actual episode, what uh, what is new on the network? All right. We've got a Profiles interview with uh, New Testament scholar John Kloppenborg on his uh, book, Christ's Associations. Uh, it was a venture into uh, a realm of biblical studies I don't spend a whole lot of time in. Uh, so that was a good deal of fun. We also have a uh, Sectarian Review episode, Apocalypse, Pop Culture, and George MacDonald. Uh, I haven't had a chance to listen to that one yet, just because, as listeners know, I do most of my podcast listening on my commute, and I have not commuted for something like a month now. You can uh, listen to it on the can now, Nathan. That should be your new... Yeah, except even then I get called into other rooms to fix machines so that people can have video conferences. <laughs> I wish I were making that up. I have, as it turns out, listened to that episode of Sectarian Review. I almost know, they, Those air on Thursdays, which is when we record this show, so it's very rare that I listen to them before we announce them. But it's a good episode. I really enjoyed it. Anything else on the network, Michael? I, I, I made up my list, uh, I feel like, a couple days ago. So anything added to the calendar since then? Three days from now, there'll be a new uh, Christian feminist podcast on Christian sexual ethics, which Katie is also on, and they're recording it tonight, so she's got a busy podcasting day. Wooey. I'm looking forward to it. And to be honest, it's a little bit easier maybe to get it all done in one go in one day, um, because we have all of our kids are at home, too, which... I feel for you, Nathan, I, we don't have anything like uh, the problem of trying to teach our kids algebra, but it is it is difficult trying to get the kids, in our case, to get them sit, to sit down with us at the computer and actually do their little tiny assignments, which none of them are hard, but it's, you know, it's just getting them to stay in the chair, which is our struggle. So. Well, there was a time that I was good at math, but that time was about 25 years ago. So I, mm-hmm. <laughs> man, oh man, yeah. it's, it's been, it's been a rough quarantine but think about how well you'll know algebra on the other side of it. True enough, true enough. Well, let's get to the topic at hand. This is the 2006 Sofia Coppola movie Marie Antoinette starring Kirsten Dunst. Sofia Coppola is, or perhaps was, and we'll get to that in a minute, uh, one of the most important contemporary filmmakers. So I'd like to begin with our personal experience with her work. 
which of her films have you seen? What do you make of her as a director and a writer? Anything else you want to say about Sofia Coppola in general? Katie, let's start with you. So I have to say, somewhat embarrassingly, I didn't realize until this week when I was getting ready to prep that Marie Antoinette is the one for me to talk about because it's actually the only one I've seen of all of her work. Somehow, um, I just I missed Lost in Translation when it was a huge deal. Um, and I had some plans to watch a few more this week um, to get ready for the episode, but quarantine just explodes our best laid plans. And in the end, I didn't have time to watch anything except for to rewatch Marie Antoinette, which I really, really enjoyed. Well, and most of so, her movies are probably not terribly appropriate for small children. Well, right, exactly. Um, I did watch, I watched Marie Antoinette, rewatched it yesterday afternoon. Um, and, but thankfully all my children, that's the time we allow them to have their Kindles. <laughs> so they were like, you know, attached by the eyeballs to their screens at the time I was watching it. So it was okay. And I had my headphones on. So, um, so they weren't but... watching the long loving shots of Kirsten Dunst standing around naked. No, they weren't. To be fair, there aren't that many of them, but yeah, yeah, they weren't around for that. Um, I don't know actually that they saw, um, any of the movie. Um, I kept pausing it and making David look at the screen for w- any of the many shots that just look like paintings. Oh, um, I thought you meant you paused it to make him look at Kirsten Dunst's butt. Definitely not. Um, <laughs> I'd forgotten that, so I paused it when when that first scene went by, and I was like, wait, what just happened? Um, and then I went back again, um, because I'm also the type of person, though, that I will, if the scene is interesting looking, I might watch it again. Like, and, and not 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 in a nudity sense, but like if visually interesting, I'll watch it again, particularly in a case like this, because I want to be able to remember and we're going to be talking about visual style. So I was really taking note of everything. But so yeah, so all that to say, I don't, I mean, I don't have a huge experience of Sofia Coppola. And and one of the reasons I think that I never gravitated towards her movies in the past is because her, I think, kind of favorite type of story is not one that's necessarily one I'm going to be drawn to. Well, how would you uh, describe think, her favorite type of story, Katie? Well, so just thinking about thinking about the plots, because I'm very familiar with the plots of all the different movies, if, despite not having sit, sat down and watched it, but she, when you, if you read through, especially if you do it all in succession, when I read through all the different plots of her movies, something like Virgin Suicides and something like Marie Antoinette have a plot in which lots of things happen, but if you think about something like Lost in Translation, it's a movie about two people having a series of conversations, and then at the end it's kind of sad. Like, and that's kind of how it happens. And her next, her upcoming movie that's supposed to be upcoming this year is also Bill Murray, but with a different actress. And when I read the description of that plot, it was like so kind of low action that I actually can't remember what it's about, even though I just read it three or four days ago. Like just, and I know that things, they're not all like that, but Guile does a little bit more, you know, but um, something like Somewhere, it's just, I, I guess what I would call it is, and, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but a small plot, like not that many people, yeah. relatively few big events, and generally kind of, you know, a little sad, maybe melancholy. And, you know, let's be honest, when I'm choosing a movie generally, particularly if something like now, like quarantine, when I'm wanting a little bit of escapism, that's not necessarily what I'm going to go looking for. Um, and that's, you know, that's to do with my personality, not to do with her as a filmmaker. I think she's very, very the, talented. The, the, the nice word for what you're talking about, Katie, is lyrical. Her 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 films are not plot driven. They are, you, you mentioned the visual style is very important. They're very quiet. I saw both Virgin Suicides and Lost in Translation at midnight or 1 a.m., and that seems to me to be the right time to watch most of these movies. Marie Antoinette might be the exception. I would agree with that. I think that I think that makes perfect sense. And I think that, and, and I mean, and it's a conscious choice. That's the thing, too, is I don't think she's uninteresting as a filmmaker. I think the things that she's interested in are presenting small moments quiet moments and so um i think that's just the way it played out i i ended up not necessarily seeing much of her stuff over the years nathan how about you have you seen anything other than this movie uh actually my first run-in with sofia coppola was the godfather part three and uh, I, I figured bring that you were gonna bring that up <laughs> 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 I, I fear that that might have poisoned my opinion of her um and I, I won't say any more about that. Uh, I did see Lost in Translation probably, I want to say, close to 17 or 18 years ago. And it was one of those reminders that occasionally the universe sends me that I'm never going to be a film person. Uh, I, I remember uh, being in a thesis writers group over at University of Georgia. And, you know, my friends, you know, Alex and Ben and Casey were just, you know, one day before we got rolling, just, you know waxing poetic about what a great film this was and I, I thought well you know 
the way they're describing it is fine, but, you know, tell me about the concept so I can read it in a few minutes. Don't make me sit through two hours of it. So oh, I, I <laughs> so uh, that so this is the second you know film directed by Sofia Coppola that I've seen. Uh, so I, I don't have a great range of experience either. Well, I've seen them all except for Somewhere, uh, which is the movie that follows this one. Um, I, for a while, I probably would have said that Lost in Translation was my favorite movie. I don't say that anymore, but I still think it's a remarkably good movie that that really is a mood piece. Uh, I also love The Virgin Suicides. I, I think what's great about Coppola is the way she takes these young actresses who have had, prior to their work with her, mostly been known for kind of fluffy teen movies and shows that, hey, they really can act. And, and Kirsten Dunst, in particular, in The Virgin Suicides is just, that's an amazing performance. And I think in 1999, when that movie came out, nobody but Sofia Coppola thought that she was going to be capable of an amazing performance, and she was. Uh, and same with Scarlett Johansson in Lost in Translation. Um, you know, she's not good in everything she does. She's, she's really, really good in Lost in Translation with these, these very understated roles that Coppola is providing these young actresses with. So um, I, I do like her quite a bit, and I, I've, I've seen them all except somewhere, and they're, they're different movies. It's not like she's making the same movie over and over again, although I haven't read about the new one. Um, but they all, they all feel like they're from her I, I we haven't mentioned him yet for some reason. Um, maybe this is good, but her father is Francis Ford Coppola, which is why she got stuck uh, in The Godfather Three. I think Winona Ryder dropped out, and so he he brought Sophia in very quickly, and everybody learned that she's not an actress. But her movies feel at once of a piece with his and very different from his. So you think about have you guys seen his movie The Conversation? I have not. The, no. the conversation seems to me to be the, the kind of ground out of which her career comes. It's a very quiet, paranoid, weird, internal movie compared to something like The Godfather or certainly Apocalypse Now. So on, on the one hand, she's doing something very different than what he does. But on the other hand, I, I can definitely see where his movies would have influenced her and growing up in that environment would have influenced her. But I think she's a, a really remarkable talent and I have enjoyed all of the movies um, that I've seen by her to greater or lesser degree. So I, I'm excited to talk about this one. Uh, it's got, as Katie mentioned, a really distinctive and striking visual style. Katie, you mentioned that it was uh, a number of shots were just like paintings. Uh, how else would you characterize the visual style of this movie? So I think that she, I mean, they made the movie at Versailles, right? And so I think when I when I watch this movie, I, I really do feel in some ways like I'm walking through, walking through a museum and I'm seeing a series of paintings. And I think that she, um, the way that she stages some of her shots, you can you can pause it, and it looks it looks like a painting. And I think some of that is because there is even in the way that she had she had them move in this movie, there's a kind of stillness. So that, you know, if you pause your average action movie, it's just going to blurs. The screen is going to be full of blurs, right? But it, she'll have a scene, like the scene where she, where they're all sitting out in the grass in their muslin dresses and um, Marie's reading Rousseau to them. That was one of the ones that I thought, you know, if you pause this, it looks like a landscape and they're artfully composed on the grass and they just sit still, fairly still in the grass for a number of minutes and she reads Rousseau. Just things like that. Um and some of that is the clothes, uh, the way, I mean, this movie won the Oscar for Best Costume Design, and I think it was completely deserved. But um, the the heaviness and the breadth of the clothes, particularly at the beginning of the film when they're wearing more of those giant skirts that are as wide as three people, um, that type of clothing does not lend itself to quick movement anyway. But um, there's a stateliness and a kind of majesty in the visual look of this movie. Um, I noticed also so many shots she kind of composed in a really a completely symmetrical way so that if you're looking at the screen like um you know when um, there's several shots of her walking up the stairs at Versailles or think people will be framed by shrubs or you know hedges or things um and let me I made a few notes about some specific scenes um 
when she leaves the tent at the beginning, she goes into the tent and they're taking off all of her Austrian clothes and they tell her everything has to be French now. And she's walking through this tent and then eventually exiting the tent and, you know, and they show them pulling all of her clothes off. So you can see her kind of standing there naked in the middle. It's so symmetrical. She's in the center and then you've got all these straight lines and all these people standing kind of ranged around her. Um, various shots of the palaces. There are lots of shots of her walking through halls. Um, and it just... And, and then she will intersperse those shots with kind of very wide shots of the entire, you know, palace. Um, and then the only thing that was strange to me is there were a few places where she shifted to almost to a, a handheld camera. And it almost seemed to be like she was trying to show us what was happening from Marie's point of view. Mm-hmm. Do you guys remember that? So that it would be like she's walking behind somebody or walking towards somebody and and it and the camera would go just a little bit shaky. And those, I didn't love those particular moments. I, I got why she did it. It seemed like she was trying to give you more of a physical sense of the claustrophobia of the world that she's kind of trapped in. Um, I think that one of the scenes where that happens is the scene where she's had her baby and then has fainted because there are so many people in the room that she there's no air in the room and you know the king's freaking out and telling everybody to back up um and that it worked in that scene because that moment felt very claustrophobic but some of the other times that happened it kind of took me out of the moment because it's different than the rest of you know for the rest of the film she has these sweeping camera movements and everything's very composed or you know the camera won't be moving at all but the person's moving out of shot. So those, those moments were kind of a little bit more strange. And obviously it was a conscious choice that she made. But, um, and as far as not so much with, with camera movements, but um, with colors, I think colors are interesting too. There are some scenes that um, w- only one person will be wearing a bright color. Um, obviously that's true with Dubarry, right? All of her clothes are dark. She wears jewel tones, red. Um, she's supposed to be, look, you know, vibrant kind of wild um and she's supposed to stand out everybody else is kind of wearing pastels um so she uses colors that are interesting and and uses lots of kind of pink candy colors for marie antoinette particularly in the scene where they're having literal candy (laughs) and there's pink candies everywhere um so I, I thought it was really interesting i think possibly my favorite thing about this movie is actually visually is actually the very first scene yeah the opening scene absolutely um because I think it, and I and I, I didn't even remember that pre-credit scene. Because I should back up and say my experience with this specific film is that I saw it in the theaters when it came out, but by accident. We went to the theater for something else. We were, who knows? We may have been going to see like snakes on a plane. I have no idea what else was out that month. But um, we had already bought, uh, or we'd already driven all the way to. Was it Phipps Plaza? Which I don't know why we picked that theater, movie theater. But we'd gone all the way up there to see a movie, and the movie we wanted to see was canceled. And so we said, all right, we'll go see Marie Antoinette. And so we, I saw it in the theater, and it was so long ago that I'd forgotten about that pre-credit scene. But I think that pre-credit scene, she's showing you what people think Marie Antoinette is and was. Because she's got, she she looks lazy and indolent. There's somebody doing her feet while she swipes, you know, swipes a fistful of um, frosting to eat. There's candies everywhere. And she looks straight into the camera with this, like, insolent grin. And I think that that is, you know, she's showing us what people think Marie Antoinette is. Because you get another glimpse of that mm-hmm. moment later on when they read about her saying, let them eat cake. They flash back to that look and, you know, um, and that look into the camera. So that, I think that might actually be my my favorite part. But I don't, what it, and that was a lot. I know, I'm sorry, I know I said a lot, but I, I had a lot of thoughts about the visual style of the movie. And, and the one thing I remembered from having seen it in the theater so many years ago was when I left, I thought, well, that was beautiful. That was, that was one of the things I loved the most, even my, the first time I saw it was the visual aspect. What about you guys? What did you guys think? Nathan? Uh, a few of the things that Katie already mentioned, I mean, just to pick up on the sense of scale, especially in the shots that transition between uh, scenes with characters. I mean, you have a lot of, uh, you know, human scale objects against uh, the full grandeur of Versailles, like she already talked about. I also noticed a few where, you know, the, the camera would have in the foreground or even off to one side of the shot something relatively small so that the bodies were somewhat gargantuan. Uh, you know, the the jerky camera shots I also wasn't a big fan of. I made a note of that. Uh, one thing that I did note that that's not uh, exclusively visual, but uh, as a combination of sight and sound, uh, did some interesting things, I thought, were the scenes where she is advancing down a hall and you hear gossip coming, but the people's lips aren't moving 
who are supposed to be gossiping. Uh-huh. I thought that that was I thought that was an interesting move to make like uh, as a combination of gossip. sound. Say it again now. It's like a- atmospheric gossip. Yeah, precisely, precisely. So I mean that that was something that you know as a combination of sight and sound I thought was really quite interesting. Uh, what, what else, Michael? Because like I said, I mean I thought Katie did a very thorough job talking about the visual style. I just want to point out how different the visual style is from Lost in Translation, which is the movie before this. Lost in Translation is a very dark movie, and this this movie is very, very bright, even though the story it tells is in some ways even sadder than that one. Uh, One amazing shot to talk about that grandeur is after her mother dies and she gets word of it, there's a really incredible shot of her standing on the balcony outside Versailles, and the camera pans back until she's just completely dwarfed by the size of this building. And I mean, the, the point is made, right, that, that she is a human being who has been engulfed in this role that is not only too big for a 15-year-old, it's too big for anybody to handle. Um, so I, I, the, the visual style of this movie is probably the best thing about it, in my opinion. Well, another striking another striking thing about it is the soundtrack. Uh, it famously or infamously uses a lot of anachronistic early 1980s new wave music. There have been other period films that take that tack, and the one I have in mind is A Knight's Tale, uh, where I, I really think it was probably just a gimmick. Is, is her use, Coppola's use of Bow Wow Wow just a gimmick too, Nathan, or is she up to something more interesting with it? I, I tried to read it as a kind of musical allegory, and obviously, you know, the consumerism that one associates with the 1980s, uh, the era of Reagan and Thatcher, uh, you know, certainly seems to be uh, uh, one kind of a parallel you could draw to, you know, the 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 decadent age of Versailles. I think that works. You know, honestly, the parts of the movie that where I was in the movie, so to speak, were the parts where the 80s soundtrack went away uh and then every time it came back in uh it was one of those moments where the film was trying to be opaque and you know i i respect that as a concept like i said before but sitting through it just bores the heck out of me uh, you know especially when they are shoving candy into their mouths to the sound of i like candy i i, I mean i a little I, bit I, on the nose I, I i'm pretty sure people next door could hear my eyes rolling uh so i you know um, I, I did think it was interesting towards, you know, the, the last half, last third of the film, uh, you know, you had a lot more of the eighties music as, uh, Marie becomes more and more decadent as she gambles more, as she, uh, as she enters into her adultery, adultery with Ferson, uh, you know, but then what I thought was interesting was then when her child dies, the eighties music goes away instantly. And I, I thought that was an interesting move, and it brought me back into, uh, back into the drama, so to speak. Uh, so, you know, then when the closing credits roll and the '80s come back, I, you know, I thought, why, why do you do that? You know, because this is supposed to be a scene where it's kind of a meditative, melancholy look back on what's been going on, and and we shift into, hey, look at me, I'm I'm making a film again. So, I mean, it didn't really grow on me. Uh, but you know, I, I also have, have limited capacities in these sorts of things. Uh, Katie, I'm sure you have smarter things than that to say about it. Uh, you know, not particularly. I actually agree with you about a lot of that. I think, um, I think in some places the la- that that particular type of musical cue worked. I, I liked it the most in the master ball scene because it seemed to it created some parallels between. Um, kind of that that kind of raucous 80s like you know um, kind of image created more parallels back to the past um, and I think it you know and it worked where it did not work was there was one particular scene where she I think it's after first and leaves and she feels sad and everyone's just playing cards and she's bored and she go and she just asks permission to leave and goes back to her room and just kind of collapses on the bed and you but then there's this loud rock music but it's maybe for a minute of just her lying on the bed and I thought I don't understand why this music in this scene to me it works best when she's using it to show like you said excess or um excitement because then the tempo and the tone of the music fits what's actually happening in the scene but particularly in that scene where she seems to be supposed to i don't she seems like she's supposed to be being sad 
and then there's this weird kind of loud rock music. It didn't work for me. Um, I definitely really, really, really appreciate the use of opera in this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, in I, this agree, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, and though I read, I didn't realize this that um, it's actually it's actually anachronistic having her going to the Paris Opera House because it hadn't been built yet. Um, but I think that there is also there is an excess and there is an over the top nature to opera too, though. It's a different sound, but the the world of the opera and the operatic story is just as big and sometimes bombastic and over the top as any amount of 80s music to me. So I, I don't think that's as, as, as much of a clash as it might seem. Um, but I also liked the few times too where there was a little little bit of kind of uh, period or you know, um, contemporary to that time like harpsichord music or a few of those other, like when she's learning how to play the harpsichord. Um, though they, I feel like they did Marie Antoinette, the real Marie Antoinette, a little bit dirty on that because apparently the real Marie Antoinette was actually an expert musician from when she was a, a small girl. <laughs> so as a, as a um, woman of her social station, probably would have been right. Well, apparently it was the thing she was best at. Apparently she was not um, super great with reading and writing and a lot of the other things that her tutor tried to teach her. But she was a very skilled musician. So it's uh, it makes me a little bit sad that in the movie you see her as a grown woman trying to learn how to play the the instrument. But anyway. Well, the, the grown woman is an interesting term because, I mean, Kirsten Dunst is 23, 24 when she makes the movie. But the real Marie Antoinette is I don't think she's even 18 when she becomes queen. Uh, th- this movie starts with Marie Antoinette at 15. And so I, I think I, I was when I was watching the movie, I was trying to figure out a rhyme and reason to when they're using the, the score, the, the uh, when they're using the period appropriate score and when they're using the new wave songs. And. I think they're using the new wave songs when she is acting like a teenage girl. So when she goes to the yeah. ball and has a good time, uh, when she starts her affair, you know, this is the first time she's ever been in love because, of course, she's not in love with Louis the Sixteenth. this arranged marriage. Um, and, and so that, that scene you're talking about, Katie, where she leaves the party and goes and sulks in her room, when you were a 15-year-old, didn't you turn the music up when you did that? Uh, I'm, you know, I, I, I see what you're saying and I hadn't thought of it that way. That actually makes that scene make more sense. No, I probably would not have done, but I think I was an unusually, um, cut and dried teenager. Okay. <laughs> um, I did not. Um, and also being totally fair when I was in high school, um, at that stage of my life, I wasn't in a relationship like around that age, like 15, 16. I was like the, I was the, the random person who kind of quote went out with, right. Cause we weren't allowed to date, went out with guys in middle school and then didn't have another boyfriend until I was about 18. So, um, perhaps I would have done <laughs> if I had had the chance. But that, that's, the, that's the work I think that music is doing. I, I don't know that I would necessarily defend the choice, especially if I want candy, which is just such an obvious pick and, uh, and so silly that, that I, I did roll my eyes a little bit too. Uh, although I think there's a reference, a visual reference earlier in the movie to Bow Wow Wow, that that might pay off. The, the scene where she goes, when she's a newlywed, she goes and takes food to the hunt and sits on the grass in the hunt. I think that is a reference to the cover of that Bow Wow Wow album which itself is a reference to a painting, I think. But I, you know, it's a postmodern movie making a lot of kind of weird cultural references, recursive cultural references. As I said earlier, Katie, I'm glad we have you on the show this week because I'm not sure we can talk about Coppola without talking about her presentation of young women, which I, I think is ultimately probably the great subject of all her movies, not just this one. When you watch Marie Antoinette, do you feel that Coppola is showing you something recognizable about yourself? I would say yes. Um, not across the board, but I do think there are some things that she captured really, really well. And one of the, I think the first few scenes are really, really good when she's being taken to her new home um, because she, she has this weird, she's about 14. Yeah. Like you said, 14, 15 years old. And she, like a lot of young women that age, she has this Kirsten that plays it really well and she has this energy that's mixed so that on and and most of the time she seems very poised and well possessed but then when they take her puppy away she immediately starts crying um and you know but then tries to be brave um all the things they were doing in the carriage to pass the time like you know that it's 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 kind of a hilarious road trip montage of them um hanging out in the carriage and so she she seems like this mix of grown-up and little girl I mean she has a hair bow 
like for crying out loud, when she gets out of the carriage, she has a hair bow in her hair, um, like a little girl's hair bow. Um, and so I thought that that, that was really well done, that kind of awkward mixed time. Um, there's a lot of stuff that's very teenage girl in this movie, and I don't know that I feel the need to go all through of it. Though I will say, I, I will defend the use of I Want Candy as a song because it is endemic to a certain type of teen movie. Hmm. Which is why I was not surprised. Like, that, it, you're right, it's an obvious choice, and that's why, to me, it makes perfect sense that it's there. Because she's telling us she's a typical teenager in a lot of ways. Like, she's acting like a teenager, and not just we're going to show um, a shopping montage, which is a very teen girl movie thing, um, but also we're going to play the most obvious choice of music over it. Um, and as they're eating sweets, drinking champagne, and buying clothes. Um, the use of music in this movie at some points made me think of the use of mu- music in Clueless. Um, which, you know, another classic teen girl movie. Um, the things that felt the most familiar to me that b- simply because they're things that any girl would experience, not just Marie Antoinette, are when they take her the, to the to Versailles and she sees her rooms for the first time and sees how beautiful they are. And she's kind of bowled over by how her the, the beautiful space that now belongs to her. Now, of course, the more the further we get in the movie, the more we realize that the space is public and literally anyone can come in at any time. So it's not even a private space. Um, but when she's looking at her jewels, you know, things like that, um, I would say to me the the biggest thing in the movie, the thing that that when I heard the line, I thought, OK, that's painfully accurate, is one of the first times that the ambassador is talking to her about how she, really she needs she, you have to make sure that your husband has sex with you because you have to have an heir and your mom's worried. And, you know, he's talking to her a lot about her mother's expectations and all this kind of stuff. And she says to him and I copied it down so I would remember it right. She tells him letting everyone down would be my greatest unhappiness. And that was painfully accurate to me, to the average high school girl, at least. I don't, I mean, I don't know that I've, I, I was very much like that when I was a teenager. And I think a lot of women are like that. I mean, you know, and it's not just teenage girls. I mean, you know, and not just women too, obviously, but I think that particularly, um, teenage girls worry a lot about letting everyone down, whatever that means, right? Whether it's letting down the parents who want you to get straight A's or letting down your friends because you don't want to do the same things that they're doing. I mean, that's in a lot of ways, that's what peer pressure is about is not wanting to let down everyone else, not wanting to be a spoil sport, not wanting to um, be the one who won't go along to get along or wh- or whatever. And so I, I think that that, um, that idea of pressure to conform to people's expectations is the thing that felt the most made me feel the most if I was a young person I would say made me feel seen the most (laughs) um is that she um that she had her say that not just that she kept showing it with all the things that people keep telling her you have to do this you have to do that you have to do this but also pointedly putting that line in there to let us know that she cares about it too it's not just she has to do these things because other people are putting that stuff on her but she wants to make everybody happy and that felt very teenage girl to me well katie the line the line i wanted to ask you about is her mother says but before she goes to versailles her mother says all eyes will be on you. And and that, that line in particular made me wonder if Coppola is suggesting that Marie Antoinette's experience is somehow representative of the, the quote-unquote female experience writ large, or whether this is a specific story with specific psychology, and that line is about being the queen, and, and you know, there, there's, that's not something that's uh, transferable to all women. You know, I think it could be both. Um, I think that she maybe is trying to say that uh, that surveillance, for lack of a better word, is is would be a concern of every woman because I think that's also tied in with expectations. If other people are watching what you're doing, then they also have ideas about what you should be doing. Um, and I do think that it's true that in general, um, young women maybe sometimes have more are watched more carefully. Um, than their teenage male counterparts. But I, that, that's hard. That's a hard one though, because I know all I know is my own experience, right. And the experiences of people that I know, I don't know that she's trying to, with that line. I don't know that she's trying to go as far as something as, as far as something like the male gaze, um, or something like that, where, you know, you always, you're always going to be under the, the gaze of men. Um, but I do think that you, you could, you could think through some ideas of, um, what does it mean to be a young woman, with no privacy of any kind, which she doesn't really have any meaningful sense of privacy. Um, there was one other thing that I forgot to say before. Um, 
which is um, I also think that one other thing that this this movie um, does in terms of the female experience that I think is interesting is that there are these moments where despite the facade and despite the artificiality of so much about what they're doing, the shape of their clothes, all this kind of stuff, the old, as she ages um, and her kind of style change and her desires change and then, you know, as she's getting towards this kind of getting back to nature, like, you know, wanting to sit out in the grass all the time, whatever, she seems to be uh, more connected to her own body. And one of the ways that they show you that is when she has her baby and she declares her intention of feeding her own baby. Mm-hmm. She says, they're going to take away her baby to the wet nurse. And she says, I want to feed my own baby. And they tell her, oh, no, no, um, we have somebody to do that. And anyway, it's dangerous for you in your fragile condition. And she kind of frowns and makes this face that clearly means I feel fine. <laughs> like I'm not fragile. Um, but that was really interesting to me that uh, and I have no idea if there's even a, an ounce of truth in that. But uh, I think by having a woman of her class in her time have a desire to feed her own baby, I think that Coppola is saying something about embodiment and uh, the way that Marie Antoinette is experiencing her body. Well, and, and her body's important. You mentioned the male gaze, but in the in the several nude scenes in the movie, and I, I should say I, I don't think there's really anything explicit um, in the nude scenes for our listeners who haven't watched the movie, you see Kirsten Dunst's butt and then you see her covering herself. But she, um, there aren't men around. It's the, it's the female gaze that has stripped her bare, you know? Yeah, that's true. And that's another reason I wouldn't necessarily say that she's trying to say stuff about the male gaze. But you're right. It's particularly the scenes where they're dressing. They're explaining to her that people are going to come in and dress her. And she just kind of has to stand there until, you know, people come in to put her clothes on. That scene is just, just excruciating. Well, and <laughs> the sister-in-law who, who very slowly takes the gloves off so she can make her stand there naked for longer and, and humiliate her, really. Yeah, it's that's that scene is is not fun. Um, to watch and uh, and it's the same I mean you know when, when at the very beginning of the movie when they're taking off her Austrian clothes and putting on her French clothes and they lift off the her chemise whatever it is she's got on the bottom and so she's kind of standing there naked you can see out the other end of the tent and I was thinking it's what like you know th- there, this is a tent that has no door like anybody walking by outside could see her standing there naked and um and maybe Coppola just did it that way so you could see all the way through the tent but it that felt she like she was just on display I mean you know so it's it, yeah it's a I don't know it's 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 a movie that uh well and oh I know what I was gonna say about surveillance um the way that her bedroom is set up with this that you got the bed and then there's this almost like a a railing kind of around do you know what I'm talking about? It was kind of bounding the area of the bed. And so that if you, if the room is empty, you really, really notice it, but you don't always notice it because often the room has people, but it looks like there's going to be an exhibit. Mm-hmm. Like it's set up in such a way that you would expect people to have to stay behind the railing to, to watch what's happening in the royal bed, you know, which, and they actually have the, the bedding ceremony too, when they get married, which was not unique to them. I mean, it happened with lots of uh, alliances and royal marriages and stuff, but I kind, mean, kind of know. gross to have the priest there. Yeah. Well, I mean, at least they left. I, you know, when you, when you think about something like, um, like the Luthers, I mean, like the consummation of their marriage was observed. Like, so it was not, you know, stuff like that happened all the time, which, you know, trips us out now, but, but yeah, it is very uncomfortable. And for somebody watching that scene in that movie, if you didn't know that they were going to leave before they actually were supposed to start having sex, then it would get even more ridiculous. Thankfully, everybody leaves. So they close, or maybe they just close the curtains. I can't remember. Well, but it takes them eight um, months to have sex anyway, or however long it is. It's, it's a long time because apparently. It was years. Apparently Louis the Sixteenth doesn't understand how sex works until somebody explains it to him with a, with a lock and key metaphor. You asked me about teen girls, but to me, the boys are very teen. Yes. Very teen boys um, at the beginning. And he particularly, it, the the awkwardness, I mean, Schwartzman, like, the way that he plays it is, he's just, he's so awkward. And um, It's a very so, sweet yeah, but performance it, from him, though, I think. He's really sweet. By the end of the movie, yeah, I mean, it, watching him, watching that version of, of Louis, kind of develop real feelings for her because that's the other thing when she first gets there you get the feeling that he mostly he's just interested in hunting he's not even really thinking about sex and so it is interesting to watch his, to watch the two of them change um so yeah it was I, I mean I, I felt like there were recognizable aspects of my female experience in the movie and I do think that that is an interest of hers um that she she likes to kind of walk through though I will also say that 
and, and this is going to sound unnecessarily critical, and I don't mean it to say, but I wonder sometimes, too, if she she is so fascinated with the adolescent or the young woman's experience, because in some ways, her life, Sophia Coppola's life, to me, has been a kind of lengthy, um, a lengthening of that same stage. I mean, she's a grown woman making beautiful movies who has children, but at the same time, she's a grown woman who makes movies all the time with her friends, and her husband makes music for her movies, and then her dad helps fund the movies. Like, so the way she gets to live her life is a way, is a way that any teenage girl would jump right on board with. And, and, and I don't mean that, again, I, it sounds terrible to say it that way, but I was thinking about that yesterday as I, I told David that it's interesting to me that she keeps being interested in the same, you know, kind of young girl developmental kind of story. And then I thought, well, I mean, the way, you know, her life feels that kind of that way to me. I don't know. Her life feels like a teenage girl's dream. Her actual life does. I don't know what that means. I just kept thinking about it yesterday. One of the big tensions of the movie is Marie Antoinette's relationship with the French court, especially the formality of that court. And with that in mind, one of its most interesting sequences to me comes midway through the movie when Louis XVI builds her a little chateau called the Petit Trianon. And for a few minutes, she appears to live the life of a French peasant. She collects eggs and she reads, as Katie mentioned, Rousseau's Discourse on the Origin and Basis of Inequality. Nathan, did you find that sequence as interesting as I did? Yeah, it was certainly interesting. I mean, you know, the the line that she speaks, I want something more simple, natural, uh, certainly, you know, gets you ready as a viewer for the contrast. Uh, we get a change in lighting instead of all of the lamplight and candlelight that we've had for most of the film. Uh, we actually have scenes shot in sunlight. Uh, you know, some other, you know, fairly evident, you know, visual distinctions, you know, instead of their hands being occupied uh, throwing dice and dropping cards, we have them occupied, as you said, gathering eggs. Uh, they're drinking milk rather than wine. Uh, you know, I, I honestly know very little about the historical Marie Antoinette or her biography to know whether she would have been reading Rousseau. Uh, I mean, I, I thought that, you know, that, that scene was a little bit heavy-handed, not as much perhaps as I like candy, but I'd, I'm, ah, I'm just not a film person. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I do think it's interesting that, you know, the sort of transition, you know, from this scene back into the court uh, happens once again on an operatic stage. Uh, so, you know, the, the interesting movement to me is she has this moment of distance from the life of the court it's sunlit, it's simple, it's industrious, uh, but then as we move back into the court, it goes through that stage and she is performing on stage as, you know, a milkmaid rather than actually living as a milkmaid. So I thought that that movement out of that scene was at least as interesting as the scene itself. I would add a couple of historical details to, to complicate this scene a little bit. First of all, the Petit Trianon is on the grounds of Versailles. So it's not some sort of country getaway. It's it's not that far from this place of enormous formality. And I think that complicates things. Right. I, that's interesting, Michael, because I knew that. So I just kind of assumed that the film was presenting it that way. I mean, do you get the sense that they're treating it as out in the country, so to speak? Until I looked it up, I assumed it was out in the country. Because, again, there's supposed to be this huge contrast between her life at court and her life. She calls it my little town or something like that. Okay, okay. And, and I guess because I knew the history of it, I just kind of assumed that she was going back to her, you know, observation deck bedroom every night. No, I think she's living at Le Petit Trianon, which, I mean, they call it Petit. It's not small at all, right? It's bigger than any house any of the three of us will ever live in put together. It's, right, it's, right. It's enormous. <laughs> um, but the other thing that's interesting to me is Rousseau. Now, I have no idea if she read the discourse on the origin and basis of inequality. It would be a weird book for the Queen of France to read. Rousseau has one really important connection with Marie Antoinette, which is that he's the one who coins the phrase, let them eat cake. 
And he does. Oh, and see, I I had forgotten that, but yeah, I remember that now. Yeah. And it's not about her when he says it, because it's in Confessions, which is published in, I think, 1786. So it's before the French Revolution. But he's the one who comes up with that phrase. And so I, Coppola must be playing with that to have her read Rousseau like that. And then to have her deny that she ever said, let them eat cake openly later in the film. I, I, I think she's got to be having a little joke about it. I, I find that scene unconvincing and I think it's supposed to be unconvincing. I think the point is that her supposed simplicity is built as much on the labor of actual French peasants as her life in Versailles. It's just as artificial. She's not a peasant, which is why she has to go play one in the opera. There, there are there, yes. there are real women doing the work at this this country retreat that she's not doing, that she's just pretending to do with her rich friends. I think that scene is really quietly pretty brutal. Yeah, my and Michael, the part that the part that I loved the most about that whole sequence is when you see someone whose face you don't even get to see. You don't see the face. It's literally a pair of hands. A pair of hands comes by and washes off the eggs to make them pretty, and then later on Marie Antoinette and her little girl come to collect the eggs, yep. which have already been cleaned. Like you're right. It's it's brutal. I mean, and it, and it but beautiful. That's the thing is those scenes are they're some of the most beautiful in the movie. And and on the one hand, it it is. It's nice. It's kind of sweet. You know, you watch her laying in the grass with her little girl, and they're picking flowers. Which, by the way, why does her child speak French? It's the only French spoken in the whole movie, <laughs> I think. I know it's so weird. Um, but then but then you you she shows you that people in the background are making all this possible, right? Marie Antoinette's not milking that cow to get the delicious milk that she's showing off to her friends. Um, yeah, it's kind of brutal. What do you think of that reading, Nathan? Oh, I thought, yeah, I mean, I think that's valid. I, you know, as far as it goes, you know, like I said, what I was more interested in is the transition back to court, but I think that, uh, you know, that side of it's also valid. Katie, Marie Antoinette is one of the most notorious figures in French history, widely reviled certainly at the time for her decadence and supposed callousness toward the poor. I don't know that much about the historical Marie Antoinette, so I don't want to evaluate that reputation, only to say that this movie is clearly a response uh, to that reputation. It, she, it, she is trying to help us see Marie Antoinette more sympathetically than just the let them eat cake would have us do. But I wonder what the overall arc of Marie Antoinette's story in this movie is. Is she a simple country girl who got corrupted by the French court? Is she a woman born to privilege who, despite her good qualities, got what was coming to her? Has Coppola come to praise Marie Antoinette or to bury her, Katie? I think in terms of the film, she the arc of the film is she is a young woman who's thrust into a completely other world and she adapts to that world in some ways but struggles in other ways but eventually takes on many of the trappings of this other world things like extravagance and um you know she's spending money left and right and um but then has a kind of growth and maturity mainly I would say probably mainly through motherhood and adversity and so I I think that that Coppola is trying to present her in a way that's more sympathetic and that's in line with you know so Coppola is basing a lot of what is in the movie on a particular biography of Marie Antoinette by this woman Antonia Fraser Um, and it's called Marie Antoinette the Journey and um, Fraser I think had the same project she was trying to create create or to show a more sympathetic view basically to push hard on the fact that this is a woman who was taken you know left her family home at 14 and was sent to Versailles um and then where she was immediately disliked on site because she was Austrian um and then had to kind of survive in that environment um the thing that I and and so I think that's kind of I, I do think that's the arc of the movie um is I don't know that she's trying to she's not giving unqualified praise to Marie Antoinette. Um, I think she's just trying to say, here's a complicated person and whose actions in many ways um, make sense. I think that's what's going on with the super, super stark juxtaposition of 
Kirsten Dunst sobbing into the wall. I don't know why she kept turning her face into the wall. She kept turning her face into the filigree on the wall and sobbing. She's sobbing because she can't, her husband won't, you know, won't have sex with her. And she's, and his brother's wife has just produced a baby. And so she feels super inadequate. She's sobbing, sobbing, sobbing. And the next scene is shopping montage set to I Want Candy. But that is very pointed because I think what Coppola is trying to say is, you know, extravagance can be a coping mechanism maybe it's like a weird kind of retail therapy like um, Marie Antoinette style Versailles retail therapy and I think that that's that the juxtaposition of those two scenes to me was the most obvious kind of way she was trying to make the point of here's a person who did some things that a lot of people thought were reprehensible now let's look at human reasons why you might be that way um, I, I will say that I, I fell down a rabbit hole of research which I'm prone to and I read a whole lot recently about the real Marie Antoinette and having read more about her actual life I actually liked the film less because I think Coppola accomplishes sympathy for Marie Antoinette by making her seem like a victim the problem with that is that she also does that by sucking out all of her political savvy and um, action that she was doing in her real life because in real life she was super involved in politics she was always jockeying you know and and making deals and um even while imprisoned um during the revolution she still was making deals with people on the outside and trying to find people who are friendly to the royal family so she i do think coppola makes her seem sympathetic in the movie but it's by sucking out all of her political kind of savvy and so really it's taking away a lot of her agency and that's how she makes her sympathetic and that's a little frustrating what did you guys think I'm just to focus on the the end of the movie a little bit. I thought that you know it was kind of a mixed bag. I mean, I thought that the denial that she ever said let them eat cake was a little bit ham-fisted. But then on the other hand, you know the the sort of silent montage of the death of her child was, was I thought genuinely touching. Um, I also thought it was very impressive that you know when the crowds have stormed Versailles and she silences the crowds for a moment. Uh, was a very powerful moment there. Uh, and then finally, I mean, you know, the last line of the film, I'm saying goodbye, I thought was just a just a perfect touch until the 80s music started back up. Uh, <laughs> but I've already griped about that. Um, but, but Katie, I want to I wanna pose a question. I mean, what kind of confused me, and this is coming from a place of utter ignorance about the biography of Marie Antoinette, I mean, if she came from an aristocratic or even a royal family in Austria to a royal family in France, uh, it, it didn't strike me as, you know, that, that strong a transformation of worlds. Uh, would, would the contrast have been that grand historically? I don't know a lot about the Austrian court um, that she came from, but I do know from, from kind of doing some reading that there were some, some things that were very specific to Versailles um, as a court that she probably wouldn't have been familiar with. And I do know that her disdain for Dubarry, w w that's true. And the, the, um, the exact exchange they have where she walks up to her when she's finally willing to talk to Dubarry and she says, there are a lot of people at Versailles today. And that's all she says. That's exactly what happened in real life. Um, she wouldn't talk to her. And then finally, when persuaded that she must, um, that's what she said. She kind of walked up and threw in the direction of the king's mistress this observation that there are a lot of people around. And in real life, that was enough for the real life Dubarry, too. It was just, I couldn't believe that. I thought, surely she made this up. But no, it really happened in real life. Uh, we, um, we should uh, defend Dubarry a little bit because apparently the real Dubarry was not the. Um lascivious bore that uh, Asia Argento plays her as in the movie that she was a little bit she would never have belched at a at a reception for the queen or anything like that it was it was um, they, they play that up I think to to play up the teen movie side of it that's true she's kind of the foil and I and I do think that um, there must have been some things that were different about the Austrian court because for her to show up and in real life, and this happened in real life, to instantly have a kind of dislike or disdain for the king's mistress because she's the king's mistress suggests to me that at the Austrian court, they didn't have things like official mistresses, <laughs> um, you know, and all that's true that they say in the movie. I mean, you know, she... You, you, there was such a thing as the king's official mistress, but you had to have a title and there were rules and, you know, she had her own apartments and um, the the kind of... Um, disdain or not even disdain she seems kind of shocked in the in the film and and it seems like apparently that was true in real life um that she had this this uh 
distaste. That's the word I was looking for. This distaste for the fact that this is a place where um, there are all of these kind of sanctions for what to her seemed um, inappropriate or immoral behavior. And I think that maybe that was probably the biggest difference. Um, and apparently, because apparently I, you know, I was reading about all the real life people because everybody in the movie there has a real life counterpart with the same name pretty much. And everyone had mistresses everybody i mean it, it, the, welcome reading to about the, i know well read it yeah reading about the court at versailles makes me think people who think that the people who think that people are the shadiest they've ever been just have no idea <laughs> they just need to go read about versailles for a little while and they'll go you know what we're pretty good actually um but uh but yeah i i i think that's a good question and i i think that that's kind of how i was feeling about it this movie arguably killed Sofia Coppola's career. Uh, it is a notorious flop. It got pretty mediocre reviews. She wouldn't make another movie for three or four years after this, and, and none of her movies have had as wide a release as her first three did. Um, this one currently has a 56% on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, and that's from both critics and audiences. There's not a split there. Do you guys think it deserves that reputation? And I mean, even if it does, what's worth paying attention to in this movie? Nathan, we can start with you. Certainly. So as I said at the outset, I'm not the person to adjudicate between Sofia Coppola movies. Uh, you know, I, I actually enjoyed this one more than I did uh, Lost in Translation, but I mean, that's a pretty low bar uh, in my experience. I do think that, you know, this film, when it departs from the sort of postmodern self-indulgence, really has some powerful moments that I've talked about, really has some touching moments that I've talked about. Uh, I think that, you know, Kirsten Dunst, you know, just gives a really, really strong performance in this movie. So I definitely think it's one worth watching. Um, I thought that, you know, spending as much time as the film did on, you know, whether Kirsten Dunst is going to have sex got old for me. But again, my, my patience for these things is limited. I also thought that, you know, the 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 scenes where they came in and, you know, started talking about the American Revolution got talky in a hurry. Uh, you know, I, I guess I wanted some kind of visual representation of what was going on there. I understand why there wasn't. Just admit that you wanted David Diggs to come in as uh, the Marquis de Lafayette. Now that would have been cool. I won't deny that. <laughs> but uh, I will say that, you know, like I said, there were definitely parts of this movie that, uh, you know, were just genuinely excellent uh and you know I, I think it's a film worth watching katie uh you you know more and you have loved more this film so take it away i can understand why maybe critics and audiences didn't necessarily love this movie though i was interested to find that i think it was actually better received in france than here which is is fascinating to me um but I, I, I don't I don't think it deserves the reputation as a as a bad movie though I can see why it did not um, do well with wide audiences because it's a couple of different things at once right it's it's has this kind of um, historical epic look about it but as we've all said this whole time, you know, it focuses a lot on conversations, not on action. Um, you do get that kind of delightful, brief fantasy she has about Furson in battle, where, you know, I'm talking about like all the colors are heightened and he's like rearing up on his horse on top of a mountain of dead bodies or something. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. That was like a really exciting 30 seconds. Um, but, you know, so it, it, it kind of, because it's a mixture of things, I think that's maybe why people didn't love it. Um, you know, it's not pure history because she's changing the story. It's not purely aesthetic because there are, I mean, there is some emotion behind it. Um, and then you have this weird disjunct between music and what you're seeing on the screen. Um, I don't think it deserves the reputation of being a terrible movie. <laughs> but I do think, I think the things that are most worth paying attention to in the film are are the, the visuals and the aesthetics. I think you could watch this movie on silent and, you know, if, and like play your own music and just look at the images and it would still be a beautiful movie. Or you could, you know, you could take a still shot and post it in your house as a painting. Um, the other thing that I think is worth paying attention to in the movie besides the visuals is just the, the development of her as a character, as you were saying, Nathan, particularly at the end of the film. I think once she actually begins to mature, 
once she kind of hits the end, right? She hits the end of that kind of teen phase and the 80s music dies and she begins to become a grown-up, really. I mean, she she starts to become a grown-up. At that point, I think that the emotional journey that you see play out becomes very compelling. And I think it kind of reaches its height at the end of the film when um, everybody else is leaving, but she insists that she has to stay with the king. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's particularly... It's particularly poignant to watch given the the physical and emotional alienation between them for most of the previous, you know, development of the story. And and again, also a, a true life detail. Um, she wouldn't leave the king in real life either. Um, and so that I think is worth paying attention to is uh, the development, the character development with her may be late in the film, but when it comes, it's good. And I think that that is probably the best thing about it. See, and I would say that's the big weakness of the movie, Katie, is that the, all the all of that character development gets compacted into ten minutes of a two hour plus movie, and and yeah, and there's a, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I, I I I mean I believe it because I know that that's what actually happened, but it it doesn't seem to me that the movie has shown her transformation enough to uh, to, to make it believable as a as a as a set piece in the movie. It's an interesting choice, too, because it, to me it shows that, that Coppola really was most interested in her frivolous teenage face, yeah, which I, is fascinating. Because there's so much else you could have told after the end of that story, right? The way that she shoots it, they get taken away from Versailles. You see the smashed up bedroom by the mob in Versailles, and she's like, and the end. And you kind of imagine that they got their heads cut off the next day, when in reality they were imprisoned for several years, and a, a million things happened, including an escape attempt that was foiled. So there's so much more she could have chosen to, to fixate on, but I think she, I think that's how you can tell she was most interested in the phase at Versailles. They should, and so that's what she showed. They should make the sequel now, because Marie Antoinette died when she was 38 and that's how old Kirsten Dunst is. They should do that. Perfect. Um, I, I will, I will like Nathan, praise Dunst's performance. And I'll say that like, uh, like you, Katie, you could watch this on silent and still get a lot out of her performance because I think where she's really great in this movie is with her um, face acting. I, yes. I think her yes. her line readings are not as good as they are in some of her other movies. But man, does she cram a lot of emotion into these very small physical gestures, which is something um, I think she does for the first time here. And she uses to great effect later in her career. In, in particular, if anybody has seen the second season of the show Fargo that she's on, um, man, she does some very good silent acting on that show as she does in this movie. Ultimately, I would say this is a good movie, but not a great one. I of the movies I've seen um, by Coppola, this is the 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 one I like second to least, uh, and the, the the one I like the least is her most recent one, The Beguiled, which is a remake of a Clint Eastwood film of all things, and Kirsten Dunst is in that too. And that you know that movie is also good, but not great. I I think uh, she's done better work than this, and I think Dunst has done better work with her uh, than this, but. Overall, especially if you're interested in any of the principles in Marie Antoinette, in Coppola, in Kirsten Dunst, in Jason Schwartzman, for that matter, I, I think this is a movie well worth seeing. Thank you guys so much for uh, talking to me about it. And uh, Katie, make sure you make fun of David for uh, not wanting to. I know I will though not too not too much though because if he if he hadn't passed on it then I wouldn't have had the chance to talk about it. Can I can I say one more sentence about this movie that we haven't mentioned but I think is important? You can say as is many okay? sentences as you'd like. Okay? <laughs> All I was going to say is I think another reason that this movie didn't do as well as it could have done is I think that the the way that she had all of them speak in their natural voices was jarring. And that's that's my that's my biggest beef with this movie is that everyone ha if if they are an american they have their natural american accent if so, if someone's british they sound like a british person and, and that and cuz you were talking about Dunst line readings are not as great as they are in some of her movies. I think that they're in some ways really similar to some of her other movies, but in other movies where she's supposed to be an american person of the modern era like in Bring It On, her voice makes sense. But it feels jarring in some of these scenes, the way that she says a line or the way lots of people talk. I mean, you know, Rip Torn wanders in talking just like Rip Torn. You Rip know? Torn is and so, so great in this movie. He's so good. I forgot he was in it. And then when it when he came up, I was so delighted. Um, you know, and that I think that's one of the reasons maybe that people didn't didn't love it as much either is because you see it and you see the and it's so beautiful and everything is perfect in terms of the visuals, period appropriate. And then people start talking and it's really jarring. Um, and I think that was one of the other reasons it didn't do so well. And it was a very but it was a very conscious choice, which is also intriguing. But what's the solution to that? Have everybody fake a French accent? 
No, I mean, generally with stuff like that, people tend to do some kind of mild British accent. Oh, it's terrible when they do that. Which is also, which is also not great. And you're right. I mean, there's not a great, there's not a great solution, which makes me honestly glad that so much of her, of Kirsten Dunst's moments in those movies are soundless because she does more with her face than anyone could ever say in some cases. And so I think that's why it works so well that her dialogue is not as extensive in this movie as it is in some of her other movies. Um, also, I, I keep meaning to say, to tell or, or to make Victoria uh, have us do a CFP one day and bring it on because I love that movie. <laughs> And I would talk about that movie for a long time. She she makes fun of me, you know, because I refer to it as that Kirsten Dunst cheerleading movie. And she acts like everybody should know what Bring It On is for reasons other than it having Kirsten Dunst in it. I mean, I would say yes and yes. <laughs> Kirsten Dunst is the best part about that movie. But also, yes, there are so many great things about that movie that aren't her. I, I, love, I to... love her so much. I have loved her since um, since I was a kid and she was a kid. And I, I'm I'm always glad to see her get good parts in movies that show that she's you know, actually a good actor and not just Mary Jane from Spider-Man. Yeah, I would agree with that. Well, Katie, David is in charge next week. Do you know what he's talking about? I absolutely do not. I do. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you should talk about it. Yeah, we're going to discuss a, uh, a recent article by N.T. Wright in Christianity Today about why Christianity can't explain the coronavirus. And I uh, emailed Tom. He's going to come on and talk with us. Oh, that's right. Nathan's best buddy with <laughs> NC Wright. Yeah, that's not actually true, listeners. I think he has been on Profiles more than any other guest. I think Five times. Here. Five times. So. Wow. I assume if Nathan ever makes it to the UK, he and Tom will have a pint of uh, warm, fizzless beer together. <laughs> Well, until then, you can uh, get in touch with us at Christian hum- the Christian Humanist. Wait, what, what is our what is our email address? Nathan, save me from myself. The Christian Humanist at gmail.com. Our website is ChristianHumanist.org. The Christian Humanist podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Till next week, this is Michael Farmer for Nathan Gilmore, Katie Grubbs, and the absent David Grubbs saying, "Let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger."